Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Kristen Watson. I'm the investigator for Iowa City uh, Equity and Human Rights. And I'm very happy to have Adrienne Burrard here to um, discuss her book, Water Tossing Boulders. Um, Adrienne is an award-winning journalist and currently a senior research writer for uh, Penn State University. And uh, I'll just let you take it away uh, with your presentation about the book. Oh, I guess first I should say um, there'll be some discussion and we have it in a meeting format. So just raise your hand and um, I'll let you talk. If you prefer to type a question in the question box, I can um, let Adrian know that those are there. But if you prefer to raise your hand, go ahead and raise your hand and I'll let um, you talk directly. Okay, so we'll take it away. Thanks so much, Kristen. It's really, um, it's fun to be doing this again. I want to say it's been a, a while since I've talked about the book because it came out uh, almost over six years ago. Um, so it's, it's a, it's been a little, it's been a minute, <laughs> but it's still so relevant. So um, just, I'll give you a little background about myself before we get started. And then I have a little kind of presentation about the book, the, the, the larger picture of where the case sits in uh, American history and legal history. And then I really hope we can just open it up to discussion. Um, that's always my favorite part is hearing what people think about the book and the work and, and the legacy of what this family achieved. So um, <clears throat> a little background about myself. I'm a journalist by training. Um, so my, my degree is in journalism. I'm not a historian and I'm definitely not a legal scholar. So um, that's the context by which I tell the story of the book. And <clears throat> let's see, Evelyn, let me mute oh no it's it's working okay <laughs> um it's it's funny because I have also host controls Kristen so if I need to jump in and do something let me know um but uh, my background and experience is in journalism which means I'm really good at asking questions and I'm really great at telling stories and for the further context of kind of the full breadth of legal history involving this case and the full history history of this I had to get a lot of help from historians, from lawyers, from librarians, were and archivists were just my aces in getting this work done. So it was not done alone. Um, journalists in general are always relying on others. And I think in particular with a book like this, I was leaning on hundreds of people all over the country um, to really help me understand this case. So um, with all that being said, you know, uh, I am definitely not a preliminary expert. <laughs> uh, I am asking questions just like you. I think I'm revising the, the, the history, the story as I go, uh, as changes and events happen throughout our country. I'm trying to reevaluate the context with which I wrote the book. So um, I really hope we can keep an open conversation going. If you have questions, you know, it's uh, like Kristen said, it's a meeting format. So please feel free to raise your hand. Um, and chime in. I, I don't want this to be sort of me talking at you, but more me talking with you. Um, so just to start out, I want to give a little background of the, the book and um, what it's about. So let me share my screen. Um, I imagine all of you are coming at this from very different perspectives. So I'm just going to give a brief background of um, the book itself, the case, 
and I'll, I'll give you a little bit about how I did the work of reporting it. So um, let me share my screen. It looks like somebody's looking to join. So we will get started. Um, let's see, can everybody see my screen here? Great, okay. So, um, there's the cover of the book. There's our our heroes <laughs> in the book, the main characters of the book, the Lum family. So I want to start um, actually in the classroom uh, outside of school. So this is the third and fourth grade class of the Rosedale Consolidated School in Rosedale, Mississippi. Um, the year is 1924. And if you look at the bottom left, hand side of the screen, you will see Berta and Martha Loom, two sisters. Um, and this will be the first around the first or second week of their spring semester of the 1923-1924 school year, which is really the first year that they've been in this building. Um, and it's a really big deal for this little town. It's right on the edge of the Mississippi River. Um, when uh, I think about Rosedale, I, I really, it's a place that's sort of still the same. It's, very, it's changed in a lot of ways, but the, the general um, feeling of the place and the architecture of the place is very much untouched by time. Um, and if you look at this class, you will see a very diverse group of children. And that is because in the 1920s in Mississippi, there was a huge wave. It's actually started really at the end of the 19th century, all the way into the early 20th century. You have waves of immigration coming into the Delta. Um, so within this class, we went back and found the school roles. Um, there are children from Lebanon, from Syria, from Russia, um, and from China. Uh, either first generation or second generation children of immigrants from these places. So it's a vast, also Germany, um, vast array, even in just such a small class of, of people from different religions, different ethnicities. So um, this is the context in which I want to understand what, what happens from here, because the decisions that are made, both in the local court, the state court, and eventually the U.S. Supreme Court, have effects not just on Berta and Martha Lum, the two children. You can see they're, um, they've both got very nice dresses on that I imagine their mother sewed for them um, right there. And the, um, so that's the third and fourth children to the, to the left-hand side. Um, th this is a very diverse class with a lot of children of immigrants. Um, and at that context with which we're placing them, um, I think is something that goes against probably uh, uh, the more formal understanding of the American South. Um, we tend to think of it as in sort of binary racial terms. And what this case is all about and what this classroom is all about and really what the story is all about is about the nuances, right? Those gray areas between black and white and how our legal institutional systems are not really designed for that. 
Um, and so those gradations are really where this family lived and where a lot of these children lived at the time. And that was part of a larger e economic movement to pull in labor forces via the school. So this school was constructed um, in the early 1920s as a way to recruit people to come work. I'll show you a picture of it because it still looks almost the same. <laughs> Um, unless I don't know if anybody's joined us from Rosedale the last talk we had some folks there who could weigh in on what it still looks like today but it's still very much unchanged um, as far as the last time I was there which was a couple years ago um, so this family the Lum family moved to Rosedale to go to send their children to this school um, and it was created really with the hope of providing a really great education a great facility to the children um, throughout the region and what they wanted to do was recruit the parents to come work in um, mills. There was a lot of mechanized labor at the time that was starting up and also to work in the cotton fields as sharecroppers. Um, because as African-Americans were sort of starting that great migration moving up northward, there were all these gaps in the labor force in the area at the time. And one way to get families to come to areas like Rosedale with a lot of plantations that needed a huge amount of labor was the schools. So this is the purpose with which Rosedale Consolidated School was created. And that's one of the big motivations for why the Lum family moved there. Um, the parents both immigrated from China. They had their children there in the Delta. So um, all three of their children were born within 20 miles of Rosedale. Uh, the father decided to build a, a store there. The family ran a small grocery and until... Um, September 9th of 1924, they sent their children to this school. Now, what happens in September 9th of 1924, let me switch the, oh, I have to push this button, um, is Martha and Berta Lum attend school for the first day of the semester. They are there through their noon lunch hour, and at noon lunch hour, they're pulled into the principal's office, and they're told that they're no longer welcome at the school because the school board has deemed them to be colored um, and they therefore cannot attend a white school. Uh, now, keep it in mind the picture I just showed you, they had been attending this school uh, for, they had been attending school with a lot of those other children for the bulk of their lives. So over the course of a noon lunch hour, their family mo is moved from one side of the color line to the other. And what they decide to do there, I think is probably for me as a reporter, that was the part I was really trying to mine out the most from the story was what, when given a circumstance like that, how does a family react? And then what are the further consequences of that, right? So history in my mind is not made by these larger movements, right? It's often one person, one family, one child making a decision and then the consequences of that folding out and eventually shaping history. And that's what happened here. So uh, the, the family, the girls walk home for their lunch hour, as a lot of kids did, uh, and they don't return to the school. And instead, what they decide to do is mount a lawsuit against the school board, which is a big deal at the time. Huge risk. They're risking not only their livelihoods, uh, but their lives. This is the greatest, uh, the, the highest rate of violence to date uh, perpetrated by the Klan in the Delta and throughout that region. I mean, it is a very, very violent time. 
And it's violent against people who go up against the status quo, like this family. Not only that, but their bank lender was affiliated with the school board. So they're they're really taking, that means their mortgage on their store, everything that they own, they're risking in order to send their kids to this white school. <laughs> so here they are. I want you to get a good look at them um, because... They're, they're um, a fascinating family. Even if they had done nothing but just live their lives, they would have been worth uh, knowing about. But um, Martha's all the way on the left. She was really the center of the case. Um, even though she's younger than her sister, Berta, who's on the right, um, she was much more of a student, which is why they put her forward. Not that Berta wasn't, but she uh, Martha just had that reputation in the town as being very studious. And so they really put her front and center in this lawsuit that they mount. Um, and the father, Jugong, is also on the case. Uh, he's fighting on behalf of uh, his daughter. So he's 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 listed in the case. Um, and then their son goes in the middle. Um, Kate is the mother, Miss Kate. Um, and then Bert is all the way on the right. So this is a family. This is the, the their, uh, they are the central characters in the book. And um, they were really the focus of my attention for a long time. <laughs> um, and here is our odd oddball of a hero um this is earl brewer he is the lawyer that they find to fight this case and at the time that they find him he is uh in the middle of one of the gravest financial crises of his life he what happens in mississippi and throughout the delta region is in the lead up to the great depression cotton prices are one of the first things to fall so that means that the Great Depression actually hit Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana about four or five years before it actually hits the rest of the country. So when they approach him, he is on the uh, brink of shuttering his law practice because he has no funds. He has overinvested in farmland and the price of it has just gone down the tank. Um, he has recently tried to run for state Senate and lost, um, even in his own county. And a big reason for why he is not popular is he was used to be the governor of Mississippi and then took on um, the prison labor system, really wanted to bring it down and uh, made a lot of enemies in doing so. He tried to close down Parchment Prison, the notorious Parchment Prison. Uh, he was very adamant that it was unethical and um, super religious man. Uh, he felt like it was something that goes against all of his religious principles to have a prison labor force in Mississippi. And in, in trying to take down that institution, um, which is still um, alive and well in Mississippi. In fact, some of the archives that I visited were in courthouses and the archivists were prisoners. Um, that they were uh, incarcerated and part of their duties were to manage the courthouse archives. So it was sort of fitting that I learned a lot about the, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, incarcerated labor system through people who were at, uh, incarcerated. Um, but the, this this character, Old Brewer, he, he plays a very central role in the book and um, he, he really goes against the tide of history to take this case. And uh, I have a lot of detail about him. His, his daughters were journalists. So a lot of people ask, well, why is the, you know, 
the white man in the book, the guy that gets all the attention and he has all these scenes of, you know, what he eats for dinner. And, and it's because the, those were the records that were kept. And a lot of times when we're dealing with history, it, that's the stories that we tell are decided by the people keeping the records. So I am so grateful to his daughters because they really kept, I mean, they wrote down his morning exercises, <laughs> every last little thing that he did in his day um, was cataloged. So he is approached by the Lum family. Uh, they likely visited him at his office in Clarksdale. Catherine likely drove because Jugong would never drive a car. Um, and they traveled up there and asked him to fight on behalf of their daughter to get her into this white school. And what he does after that, I think, is the part that was really the most thrilling to me was finding, um, again, in this little courthouse, finding the first iterations of what he decides to write. And his decision, he makes a pivotal decision there as a lawyer. And I'm not a legal scholar. I know I see one here. Um, so feel free. I'm not, I won't call you out, but I know you're a legal scholar. If you want to pipe in and say anything, feel free. Um, but the, the, the part that I find really fascinating is this family approaches Earl Brewer with no money. He has no money and he decides to mount a case hinged on the 14th amendment which is one of the reconstruction amendments. I think it's something that every American should probably know by heart. I don't, <laughs> but it's just such a foundational principle to who we are, I think, um, and can really pave the way forward for our country. And what he says is he doesn't rely on any of the local laws or any of the state laws, which would say that she has to attend a school, right? He could have pegged it all on that and said, hey, Mississippi state law says that Martha Lum, a child of Mississippi, has to attend a school. Now, in this particular area of Rosedale, the black school was actually far enough outside of town that it would have been enough of a burden for her that he could have used those state arguments and may have been successful. But he doesn't. He goes right to the 14th Amendment, um, which says, uh, just a little background on the 14th Amendment. Um, there's whole books on it. You should read them. I should read them. <laughs> um, but it was passed as one of the uh, Reconstruction Amendments, which was designed to guarantee the rights of citizenship to recently freed Blacks. So this is passed after the Civil War as part of Reconstruction. Um, it's interesting because, you know, one of the, the things that you would think would be foundational right is having the rights of citizenship is voting but you have the 14th amendment which guarantees the rights of citizenship to all born or naturalized people in the united states well one of those rights is voting and they had to pass the 15th amendment to allow it so clearly it doesn't work even at the time but the idea of it right is that um and i'll just read it verbatim because i think it's something that to, to to provide context for everything that happens after this that all persons born or naturalized in the united states and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the united states and the states where they reside no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the united states nor shall they deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor 
deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Now that's called the Equal Protection Clause. And that has been central in just about every single civil rights case since this uh, constitutional amendment was passed. So when, when I first read the early drafts of this, of what Brewer was sketching out, I said, he's actually using an Equal Protection Clause case to argue that a child of Chinese descent is a citizen of the United States and therefore entitled to anything, any right privilege of any other person born in the United States. So the, that same rhetoric, that same argument is used a generation later in Brown v. Board. So that's, that was a real revelation to see that because the, the, the crux of this argument is so important going on. Um, for later cases, but he's literally a generation too early. He's he's 30 years too too far ahead. Um, and and it's flawed. So he does, he, he says the 14th Amendment, he cites it, he, he, he states that she is being denied equal protection of the laws by being kicked out of the school. But then he goes on to say that she is not black, right? That she is entitled to the same privileges and as a white person, but she's not black. Uh, and he goes, he goes through great pains to say how she is a good, clean Chinese student and in no way uh, has any, I think he even says a drop of, of black blood. So it's, it's deeply flawed in his argument, but he, he, he gets at something that doesn't become uh, a foundational part of our understanding of um, the desegregation movement until a generation later. So that's the early case. That's his first sketches of it. Um, he wins in local court. And I think a big part of it is because he was buddy buddy with the judge. Um, they went to the same church and they grew up together. But he wins. He What he does is he files what's called a writ of mandamus, which basically says like, here, you need to let this girl into the school um, on, on these grounds. And then... Uh, it's approved, and then it's almost immediately appealed by the school board. They bring it to the Mississippi Supreme Court, who, not surprisingly, sides against the Long family. Um, and then it's appealed again. Brewer appeals it again, although he doesn't argue it in front of the Supreme Court because he's kind of distracted by all of these other cases that happen at the time. Um, so he kicks it to someone who is very unqualified to argue the case. Um, and it winds up in the hands of the Supreme Court. And that's when it really becomes um, the, the damaging case that it, in many ways it still is today. Uh, some, some parts of it have not actually been overturned. Um, so what the Supreme Court ultimately decides, and, and um, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll read a part of this just because I think it's, um, it's sort of chilling and it's also points to what a wall this created. I think in, in fighting this fight with the Lum family inadvertently did was create product, probably the biggest legal hurdle for desegregating facilities in general, but especially schools within the country. Um, so William Howard Taft, the former president, decides to write the opinion himself. He's chief justice and he can dole out opinions. So he clearly cared about this enough because he assigned it to himself and it was a unanimous decision. And what they say is the question here is whether a Chinese citizen of the United States is denied equal protection of the law. So again, that's 14th Amendment. 
when he is classed among the colored races. Were this a new question, it would call for a very full argument and consideration. But we think this is the same question that has many times been decided within the constitutional power of the legislator to settle without intervention of the federal courts or the federal constitution. So they're leaving it to the states. Now, uh, before this had even happened, right? The Mississippi ruling, which ruled against the Lum family, made it, uh, created an exodus out of Mississippi for immigrant families in general, but especially uh, families of Chinese descent because they were no longer allowed in the white schools and they were not willing to send their children to the black schools. So a lot of them left Mississippi after the 1925 Mississippi ruling. But when this became a federal decision, it had ripple effects all over the country. And what it essentially did, which is the part that when I say parts of it haven't been overturned is because if you could take it at its face value, it's saying that the state and the school board have the authority to determine the race of a child and then bar that child from entry based on their determination of what the child's race is. Um, so when we think about the possibility of affirmative action being overturned next month, um, this is a very relevant case <laughs> because it's who, what they're getting at is this, it is, it is within the power of the states to segregate facilities, right? And also determine the race of the people who want to enter those facilities. That's a very, very broad uh, interpretation of what was actually going on here, but that's how far they take it in this decision. And it's really not overturned until another you know, 30 years with Brown v. Board. And even then there's still aspects of it, which if you wanna, if someone really wanted to get into the minutia of it, they could argue. Um, so, just to show kind of the, the personal consequences of that for the Lum family was they had to flee, flee their home. Part of it was, um, I think had to do with intimidation, but also they just couldn't, they couldn't attend the schools anymore. They couldn't attend the churches. They weren't welcome where they were welcome before. Um, so they had to move across the river to Arkansas and they, they lived uh, in a little store. This isn't it, but this is the same region, same area of what, the houses looked like uh, around that time. Um, and right before the, the Great Depression, and they managed to actually go to a little tiny schoolhouse there in Elaine, Arkansas. The children all got an education. Um, Martha had started at the University of Arkansas and then the Great Depression hit. And so she came to help her family at their store. Um, so that's kind of, uh, and I'll, I'll say this, this is usually questions I get. So we don't have to go into that yet because I can open up. For, for a little bit of discussion, but um, the, the, the key thing I think as the main sort of personal takeaway for me is just how much, uh, how many lives can be changed by one person's decision. And I think it was a worthwhile fight. I'm, you know, they were going against the tide of history. They were going against the status quo. And in doing so, it wound up being one of the most racist uh, Supreme Court decisions ever rendered. So uh, it's, I think that might be also the reason why uh, you may have not heard of this. I definitely had not heard of this case before going to Rosedale. Um, 
seeing the, the place for myself uh, because it falls in that gap of history where it's not a it's a fight, but it's it's not a success story. So um, I'll stop here and just have have a quick break, and then I, I I can go into a little more context of how the family wound up there and how I wound up there. Um, but I'll I'll stop here in case in case anybody has questions. Um, I have a quick question about the writing of the book. I'm Jen. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, my mom is from the Delta. She's Chinese from the Delta. Um, so I'm curious about your decision to focus so much on Earl Brewer. I thought it was great. Um, and I was curious what was behind, I mean, he was so important to the story and I'm just wondering what was behind your decision to focus on him as much as on the family. I wanted the fan. I, I honestly, it's so funny because that's a comment I always get is why wasn't Martha's voice in there? And I almost wish like in hindsight, I had made it more a historical fiction. So I could have put her in there. Because she's not there. And it's not surprising to me, right? At the time, like no one cares what a nine-year-old girl, even now it's a nine-year-old girl. You want people to listen to you. So I think, um, you know, the, the issue I had in writing it and uh, and I have even now in rereading it is the role that Brewer has because those are the records. And it's such a temptation, I think, as as journalists to use the sources and to use the good sources that we've got. I mean, I had treasure troves, the stuff that I left at the cutting room floor for him is stacks and stacks. But he, it's because that's what people thought was important, right? The, the one guy, white guy in the book has all the records kept for him. And Martha didn't keep a diary, you know? Her family didn't. They were forced to flee their home. They didn't even keep their own important family records in a way that could be preserved. So, you know, a lot of what I learned, luckily the, the family has been so gracious about sharing their own family lore. A lot of what I built in there is from them. But census records missed them. I mean, there were there were two whole censuses that didn't have them in there. Um, you know, one of the things I did to get a lay of the land was use Sanborn fire insurance maps, which are great. They're really fun. If you ever want to, yes, <laughs> if you ever want to nerd out and just look at even your own town or anywhere, you can go online and find these or go to your local library and pull these um fire insurance maps and it'll show the whole town. Uh, the businesses within the town, the the material with which this everything was constructed, constructed. So you can really see a ground view of, and they they did everywhere, right? It's an insurance company. They don't care if you're black or white. They just want to be able to make sure that if the building burns down, that they're not going to be the ones that have to pay for it. So they they really gave me a a really fascinating view of the world which with which in in which they lived. But I couldn't construct like their, you know, ethically, I just felt like I can't, I can't pull their voice into it. I can guess what they're thinking. But, um, you know, Brewer wrote letters all the time, back and forth with everybody. So I have his voice. I don't have Martha's letters. I don't have that um, context for them. So it's, it's something that's made me cognizant now as a reader, right? It's like, okay, whoever wrote this is working with the sources that were available. And so it, it makes it really hard. It's all the more imperative, I think, that we go um, continue to work as part of this project I did, an oral history project, getting, you know, 
the voices that I had wished I had then um, in conducting oral histories throughout the Delta. I think that's something we can really do is partner with our local libraries and archivists to make sure we're capturing these voices. So when a hundred years from now, some journalist wants to write a story, all that material is there for them. Well, well, on, well, on that, I thought you did a great job telling the story of the family. I mean, but much, I mean, I know how hard it is to find the historical stuff. And I thought you did a really great job getting what you could. Um, I, I've talked to, uh, I've, I've done some research on some other court cases and I managed to contact the family and yeah, they had no idea. They had no idea that their grandparents even were involved with anything. So they have, they, there's nothing uh, really to reconstruct things. So, um, so yeah, I thought you did a great job finding that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, just because it's Fourteenth Amendment, I just because on that, I think you were might you might have been that might have been a cue for me. So I just I guess I just want to throw out one thing that I think a lot of people. I'm a lawyer myself, and one thing I think people don't understand, I think that's really helpful for people to know is like really how much those post Civil War amendments changed the Constitution. I think that's really like it's like a totally different document because of those amendments, and it really did change like. Federal, the federal government really wasn't that powerful or important in terms of civil rights until those amendments got passed and enacted. And eventually the Supreme Court, you know, gave life to them. And that did that took a while. And that is why this decision, equal protection is such an important concept now, but it took several decades to get there. And this, yeah, this case was kind of too, it just the court wasn't there yet. And that's kind of why it feels really weird. Like it's so obviously wrong now, but you know, it, but a hundred years ago it wasn't because the law hadn't cut off yet. I'd be so interested to read an article about how what you're talking about plays into what's happening right now, like you mentioned with affirmative action and just all the changes to ed education right now and book bans and all this stuff. I'd be so curious. That would be an interesting. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm pitching got, to you to pitch it to someone. <laughs> no, I got asked to write an op-ed, so I've been plunking away at it. But uh, yeah, I, it's getting there. It's all, it's fermenting in there. <laughs> in in terms of when, um, by the way, great book. But in in terms of when the um, it was argued before the Supreme Court, um, do you think that there was? I mean, was based on your research, was there uh, an intent to uh, keep it as narrow as, as possible? Supreme Courts, by and large, are largely conservative throughout history. You can count the number of liberal eras on, on two, maybe three fingers. So was the, was the intent of the, the lawyers representing this little girl to try to make it as narrow as possible to to get a decision to in 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 her favor knowing full well that it wasn't going to be time to perhaps in the eyes of the supreme court to open up the floodgates to um to one and all do you think that there was some intent to try to narrow narrow the arguments um, as opposed to how it was, you know, pursued later on with uh, Brown versus Board or even if it, even Loving, where they were looking to to blow it wide open. Yeah, that's a good. I've I've known Eric my whole life almost, so 
you stumped me. No, I think the issue I've had with trying to understand this case, um, and there's been a lot of them, is what happened at the end there. Because Brewer was fighting, it was successful locally, lost in a very big and public way in the Mississippi Supreme Court. He argued in person, long rants, it's all transcribed, but really full-bodied, full-throated argument on behalf of this family. Um, then when it finally gets to the Supreme Court, he disappears and he kicks it to this corporate lawyer who has never in his history, he's argued on behalf of railroads and stuff, but he has no experience in this at all. And he decides he opts first. No one can get a hold of him. The family can't get a hold of him. There's all of these people writing him letters throughout the Chinese community in the Delta who are like, hey, uh, we know you're the lawyer. Can you please respond to us? And nothing. And then he decides the Supreme Court can't get a hold of him. And they're like, well, then do you just want to argue in brief? Because we can't like set the time. What's going on here? And he's like, sure, yeah. And then he sends something that is even like it even in itself isn't very clear argument. He sort of argues against himself um, within his own brief that he sends. So there's really, I don't think there's that level of strategy. I mean, maybe, but I think it was more, um, I don't think they understood the historical relevance that this had, even at the time. And you can tell even from the coverage of the Supreme Court decision, like it wasn't even, it was the last page in the, the papers throughout Mississippi when that final verdict was rendered. So I think even at the time, the, the full impact of this wasn't really felt. Probably, um, you know, they wanted a little extra money. Maybe the family was able to pull a little bit of money for this guy, Flowers, who took it on at the end. And he was like, well, I'll just do whatever for a little extra change. And that was it. Um, yeah, I, I, I get a sense that Brewer did want to just blow a hole in the whole thing. <laughs> he had, he was really the type of guy that just carried a lot of indignation around with him and would, wouldn't have sort of had that level of calculus. Um, and I don't think they cared about the Lum family um, that much. I don't think they cared if they won or lost. I think it was, you know, at the very low list of things for this this lawyer at the end to, to care about. I mean, even his own records, which are at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, his notes at the time are all scattered all over the place. He's not keeping good records of of what's going on with the case, even at the time, so. It's yeah, it's 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 not it's so funny because when I when I first sort started pitching this book to agents, they they wanted that that ending that you get in all court movies. <laughs> and that's not there. I was like, no, this is like a quiet, sad reality of what happens in so many cases, is it has the potential to really change the legal architecture of the country and instead it's a missed opportunity. And that's I think what happened. I had a question kind of about that, Adrian. Um, first, I guess I'll say I did, I, as, as much as their story doesn't have much of a first person voice throughout the Lum family, um, using them as the main driver for this tale was great for me because I, you had all those little offshoots of major history impact, impacts that are going on where you have like 
the the immigration story of cr like crossing from Canada. So you could tell those kinds of tales and set the scene of where we were as a country, and then their their migration path, and then the Great Migration north. And so there are all these great tangents of that kind of um, turn of the century that was happening um, to places right there. Um, but also, yeah, focusing on this case means basically um, like a support of a much deeper institutional racism going on where you can say like this is a super important landmark case potentially that both was completely forgotten by its lawyers, but also like the, their main thrust of the argument was kind of like they're not uh, as bad as black people. Um, and that's a really tough one to tell in 2022 when you're probably writing or 2021 when you're writing this, obviously. Um, and also not a great, not not a great argument at all in history. But so I guess my question would be sort of like when you, I'm guessing that was sort of the pitch, uh, this this whole tale as it as it is. But then how do you, how did you? find a path there to kind of make that story uh, more palatable? Or did you just sort of tell it because that was the story as it, as it is, I guess? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it takes a lot of research to find the threads like that. I researched for seven years and wrote for about a half a year. So it's really, uh, the, the work is all on the front end. Um, but the the you hit it square on the head there, which is the family wasn't arguing to desegregate American schools, even though that's kind of what the lawyer was arguing in the beginning. That's not what the family wanted. They wanted whiteness, um, legal whiteness, right? Institutional whiteness. And um, so it's it's really complex, right, that you have all of these gradations um, within the American South. Um, of people kind of moving between worlds and they're navigating that that really complex space between black and white and uh, every step that you take is navigating that boundary and that was the part that really sold it for me of like I can devote this much time to trying to understand this because I think it gets at something about our culture our history that is still not fully uh understood or articulated which is we have binary structures set up right still very much but what happens in that space in between and how do people navigate that and um what are the ways in which our uh institutions right in this case legal and educational institutions are created to further divide and create those divisions um so, I mean, I find it really compelling, right? That right now the big the big crux of the the case, which will likely be, you know, will will overturn affirmative action next month, is hinged on um, you know, Asian American students, right? Like that's that's what it's all um, based on. And it's it's like that 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 is still so relevant. It's been a hundred years <laughs> to the date. Since uh, the family's been that that the Lum family was um, where it will be almost a hundred years to the date, um, 
so it's 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 crazy to me that we still have not remedied this right that we have we have not fully embraced the our multicultural identity as as Americans and instead find ways to build structures we want to we want to have these these clear very clear boundaries and structures and what happens with families like the Lum family is they're they're forced to navigate that I mean a nine-year-old girl is forced to navigate that so it's it's really um that was the part that was the most I think it was when when I learned that it all happened in one lunch hour right that this family had been attending the same school and then over the course of an hour a girl is told that she's not one race but another race and that her reality of how she was raised and told and who she was right is she's she's no longer she's denied all of the spaces that she was previously given literally an hour before um that that was the part that sold me on like okay it's worth it to mine these depths but because there were so much gaps in the historical record I had to go with what was there so I knew Jugong took this train ride which I actually took it was really fun <laughs> um up through so that's why some of those details are you know me riding the train but the records of of all of that are still there um transit is a really good way to recreate the past because you can know the routes that people take and then describe those routes so you'll see a lot of journalists who are writing about history there's always some train rides some bus rides <laughs> because that's the physical landmarks are always there and you can work off of those even if you have no other context so that was a big part you there's a lot of movement going on in my book and I think part of that is because the historical record allows for that it gives you room for narrative and all of those little spaces I um I am I'm actually from Rosedale and so I really appreciate this book because I never heard this story until I, well I certainly didn't it certainly wasn't taught when I was in school and, and I'm 77 now so I have a um so I really appreciate it and thank you for for doing this history and I have a personal footnote to it um my father's brother um, in World War II was in China and he met a woman there, lovely woman who had been married, had a son and, and divorced and my uncle and my aunt Anne married. And after in 45, they came back to Rosedale because my uncle was still with the military or with the Pentagon or somebody in the Department of Defense and he was being sent to Greece. So uh, it was decided that my aunt, Anne, and her son, Bobby, who my uncle had adopted, would stay in Rosedale with my grandparents. And my aunt was pregnant with her second child. So um, they were in Rosedale. My uncle was sent to Greece. And fall came, and it was time for Bobby to go to first grade. And my aunt went down to the school board to register him, and he was denied admission. And they told her that he had to go to the black school. So my aunt was really angry and she was nobody to mess with. And she somehow got herself up to DC and persuaded the powers that be at the Pentagon to send her and Bobby to Greece to be with um, my uncle. So my second cousin, their, their second son was born in Greece in January of 46. That story I knew as I was growing up, but I never knew. And when I went to school, I graduated from 
that school that still exists barely, uh, all those closed, they don't have classes there now, sadly, but in um, 63. So I grew up with Chinese children in, in my classes and, and my mother was a teacher and she always said they were the smartest kids she ever taught. So she, you know, she just embraced them all because they were so, such great ideal students. But um, anyway, it's just, I was appalled when I knew, I heard about this book from one of my cousins who, the cousin who was born in Greece. So um, thank you very much again. That's incredible to have that family connection. You know, when, when a lot of families return, um, families of Chinese descent, when they return to the Delta, their children were allowed after World War II, which is interesting. Um, it was like, I thank you. It, this is th that gap between Brown v. Board and um, the Second World War. So some families were allowed to, to send their children to the white schools, but it was only after service, which is really, um, and, and uh, there was, I'm sure you've, you've uh, read the book that they made, uh, the, the, the Delta Chinese Historical Society. I'm going to get their name wrong. I haven't actually read that book. So oh, I'll, they I'll made a, it. Yeah. You should get it. I'll see. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think you can order copies and um, if not, I'll, I'll make sure you get one because it's, it's oral histories of people who were either living in the Delta during that second world war or uh, traveled overseas. Um, so, and, and the veterans. So it's is it, is it in one of your works cited? Yes. I'm sure. Okay. I'll, I'll find it. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I, they do a really good job keeping track of people's stories, but that's one of those stories that should be in the book. <laughs> Thank you. So, my, um, oh yeah. Okay. I was just going to add that my mom was born in 37 and she went and she was from Marks and she went to the white school. She and all her five brothers and sisters. Uh, so by the time she was school age, things were very different in a very short period of time, really. Well, I don't know what happened in Rosedale, but that's the family history I got and why my cousin was born in Greece because <laughs> his, his brother couldn't go to the school in Rosedale. Yeah, it probably depended by town, I would guess, also. Yeah, that was the thing is it wound up being very much like who knows who um to get into the the schools so when uh yeah it, it it's interesting because it's part of this um oral history project that I did with the archives there um and that's worth a worth a visit if you're ever thinking of traveling to the delta um the delta state archives has a huge wealth of information probably the best in the south on um you know, the, 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 both the immigration and the larger trajectory of Chinese Americans in the South and in the region. Um, but a lot of the stories were, well, I went to the school, but my cousin down the road couldn't go. And, you know, it's all about who knows who, which is so very <laughs> typical of the Delta. <laughs> it's still that way. Um, it's all about who has what family connection. Um, but it, it makes it so even when my family was there, right? So my grandmother was born uh, 
let's see she was born in 37 i think um and so she was born in cleveland mississippi they uh at the time she was coming up there was a school at the local church that had been created for chinese students so they actually made their own school um sort of further segregating themselves and then eventually after brown v board they started to matriculate at the high school with her but it was um very much um, still super siloed educational environments. And, um, you know, and, and part of the thing is so interesting because when I first read, this is the, the level of like naivete that I had going into this, this research project was I was like, well, maybe the NAACP got involved and, you know, really wanted to support this because this could be like a landmark case. And, you know, what, what, my mind was going to was well this is you know everybody could fight for either desegregating all schools or why don't they try to fight why isn't the you know if they have to send their daughter to the black school why aren't they fighting to make the black schools better right like that that was my initial take of it and still in america that's not happening <laughs> right there is still that level of segregation i live in the rural rural virginia and it's still deeply segregated schools and family, white families are still not sending their children to the, you know, quote unquote, black schools. Um, and it's still chronically underfunded. Um, so I think, you know, all of this stuff, it's still very relevant today. It's not like the problem has gone away by any means. In fact, it's probably only been made worse in a lot of places. So, you know, my original thought was, well, well, they can just work to build up, they can join forces and everybody can work to build up the schools together and make a one big happy family and the reality is that's not what happened at all everybody went to their own corners and they took their gloves out and they fought and that's kind of uh the 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 outcome of that it was really um devastating for everybody um you know especially the lum family but for all fa immigrant families throughout throughout the south they they saw this verdict and it, it made a really, really um, chill, had a chilling effect. Um, and in fact, at the time, uh, China was on the verge of war with Japan and a lot of families in that area decided to send their children back to China um, on the brink of war. They would rather have their children there than in, in the South at the time. So that that tells you something. Um, and again, that book actually has some of those um, histories, Eleanor, if I, I'll, I'll find it for you, but it, it's got some of the family stories of, especially some of the, the really touching ones are about the mother's experience of knowing that they're sending their child uh, back to really a war-torn area and trying to make sense of that. So they have letters of them and they're writing to their aunts and uncles abroad and trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate all this. So it's, it's, um, it was not just, you know, the Lum, the Lum family impacted. It was hundreds of, hundreds of, hundreds of families that this really made a change. And then eventually, right, that this is one of the things they're going back and forth about when they're trying to argue Brown v. Board is how do we, how do we uh, get over this, this case, Lum v. Rice? How do we confront that? Because oh, it's very clear. <laughs> They're very clear in their language what they intend. Well, I, I was looking through your book as you were talking to, to find out about when the Rosedale schools 
began allowing Chinese children to come to the school and they, it was after World War II, but it does mention that Marx and Sinatobia and one other place didn't segregate Chinese students. So your mother had that experience or grandmother. Um, but the problem that you're talking about, um, Adrienne, about this segregation of and the schools, it's, it's why the Rosedale School doesn't really exist anymore because they're, it's essentially a, a, almost an all black school. And um, the, well, health, the, the education there is just terrible anyway. It's, it's very upsetting. <laughs> I don't want to start talking about Mississippi Delta because <laughs> it's hopeless. Yeah, I mean, it's really having, so I moved from Manhattan to the Delta to work on the book, um, which was like a very rude awakening. <laughs> um, but the the first thing I learned was how little things change. When they do happen, it's amazing, right? It's incredible. But you, I mean, Rosedale still, you would say that it's it's in total state of disrepair, the school itself, but even they consolidated that over the past couple of years, it's been in the news, right? That they they consolidated it and really moved funding away from Rosedale, even though it desperately needed it. They found a way to kind of continue to pull funding from it. So um, that area, that that level of poverty is really still so, so there, still very present. You can feel it. Um, and it's it's not, it's not getting better. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to get fixed, but it's really, it's, it's hard to, to, you know, look back at the archives and see this and then realize that the same, it's the same, it's the same now as it was a hundred, 150 years ago. Um, that same building, that same town, that same community is grappling with the exact same issues. Um, so not to you know put it on a dark note but it's definitely like it's it was it was very present to me as I was working on the book because I was there in fact some of the archives are kept um the courthouse is right down I mean you know the courthouse is right down the road from the school and a lot of the archives are kept in an old jail behind the courthouse <laughs> so I had to go into this jail cell um, with boots on because it was often flooded and so the records were moldy and it was typically the inmates that were in charge of the records and some of them were really passionate about it and they kept track of stuff and some of them could care less so you you're working with people who have been a part of the prison system for some of them you know 20 years um, who are the ones keeping these courthouse records detailing this case which is you know one of the <laughs> just only in the delta would you have that kind of experience but um it's it's worth a trip it's really you know i always tell people it's it, it, you haven't seen america until you've seen a place like rosedale you really can't understand um where we come from and where we're going until until you visited a place like that and there's a lot of good things there too <laughs> not to disparage rosedale but I'll tell you the 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 part the reason I moved there is because I kept making trips back and forth from New York and people would sit on their porch for like hours and bring tea out and I mean we wouldn't get to the heart of the conversation until two or three hours later. So I said I just need time with people for them to trust me for us to understand each other. So that was a big part of the move was just making making time because people really do um, they'll they'll take time to really tell you 
they're good storytellers. They'll they'll tell you the full history of of where they're at, but you got to give them a little room to do so. One thing that really struck me was um, these many threads that resonate today, like your concept of the beginning of the idea of the quote-unquote illegal immigrant was actually the Chinese Exclusion Act. And those things were really fascinating to me. Yeah, I, yeah, it's interesting. We hadn't talked about immigration. I actually have, well, I won't pull up slides because I think that'll um, distract. But part of the um, link that's made with immigration uh, that I kind of came across was... Um, the link between immigration and emancipation, um, which had never dawned on me, right? That you look at the South in the 1860s, and then you look at the South in the 1870s, and you see this huge influx of Im immigrants. And, and that is to subsidize a labor force, right? And so it's really fascinating to, to delve into that. Um, and especially to see I mean, I was just, my understanding of Chinese American history was basically, you know, railroads, right? Like, that's what we were taught. It was like, oh, okay, the Western part of the United States and construction of the railroads. And to place these families who for generations who are still there are, you know, part of the fabric of the American South and the cultivation of cotton. And all of these stories that we've been told 100,000 times are really about you know, more the African-American experience. Um, it's just not, it, that gap was so uh, interesting to me because I had not understood that. So yeah, I mean, a lot of these families who are still there today, their ancestors were brought over as coolie laborers against their will from Southern China on slave ships. They were middle, they were made after the Middle Passage, right? They were constructed to kind of replicate what was done during slavery. So it was really a kind of legal form of slavery with which these families were brought over. Um, it's kind of a second wave. Now, it's obviously not generations of it. It's, there's no way you can compare the two experiences. But um, when we're looking at changes in the landscape of the South during Reconstruction, I think that pivotal part of immigration is really um foundational to who we are as Americans. And it's total, it was totally, it was completely out of my mind. I had not ever placed those two things together. Um, and so that, that was a big learning curve for me. And also how we understand what is legal and illegal immigration and how that definition changes based on the political landscape, um, based on you know, the, the, whoever is in power at the time. Um, I mean, I knew nothing of eugenics, which was really a big part of what helped create and codified our understanding of what is um, a legal or illegal immigrant. Um, so yeah, there's a whole history there that you're, is also super relevant right now um, that I didn't fully understand until I, I got into it. And again, like I said, I'm definitely not a historian. Um, I, I, you know, I was learning right along with you as a reader, trying to figure this stuff out, but mostly it was just to make sense of what, it, 
what are the factors with which this family is forced to operate? You know, how, how are they, what is the context for the decision-making that's going on here, I think was part of it. And then all of those other voices that we can't bring to life, kind of like Martha's, right? Like all of these other pages in history that we just don't have. Um, you know, the waves and waves of immigrants that came to the Delta who were just not included in the narrative at all um, and still aren't. Uh, I think there's just so, there's so much depth to mine there that we just haven't really figured out how to tell those stories. Um, so hopefully, I mean, my hope when writing this book was just to kind of pop a little lid off and it's a short book, you know, I didn't, there was not a ton to work with, but I'm hoping that people go on and continue to research in these areas. Cause there's a ton there, um, you know, th throughout the South, there's just so, so much nuance. I, I, we don't really think of the South as being a hub for immigration, and it was. It really, I mean, the rural, the rural South had huge immigrant populations. Um, so, yeah, it, and it changes the way you think about the people who grew up there. Any more questions? you covers in the book covers in your book but how i thought it was fascinating how you even came to find the story and do this book in the first place um i just thought that was really interesting or maybe just yeah. talk about that a little bit like how did you end up writing this yeah yeah i think yeah that's a i still ask myself that <laughs> i think that's part of it too is like well who am i to tell the story i'm not from the south um but i um was sent there on assignment. I was sent to this archive, which is across the street from where my grandmother grew up. Uh, and my great grandmother lived with her uh, six children. And um, so the archive at Delta State University is literally across the street from my family's home. And I, I wanted to see, I was there to kind of figure out if I could write about my own family history there. And um Long story short, I couldn't, it was way too much. I just wasn't like um, advanced enough of a journalist or a person at the time to try to tackle that. Maybe now, um, but when I was at the archive, I happened upon this meeting of the Mississippi Delta Chinese Heritage Society, which is still very much up and running. They are a fa fantastic group of archivists and just people who know the history and know their own history. and. Um, they are worth, worth knowing they have a website, um, and they have a museum now in that space, but this was before they had really formalized the archive and formalized the museum. And they were just starting on figuring out how do we capture these stories? And, uh, I went in there and I met Frida Kwan, who's, she lives in Memphis now, but she's sort of the spokesperson for that group. She's so funny. And, but she has this thick, thick Southern draw and her family um, is one of the first Chinese families to have immigrated to the Delta. So she's, her family has been in that area for generations and generations. So she knows the Delta like the back of her hand. And, you know, she's this small little Asian woman who just is like a spitfire. And um, I met her and I was like, I have to change everything. <laughs> She just veered me in the direction of like, there's this whole part of history that nobody talks about. Um, and so I chatted with her for a long time and just tried to get a sense of where, what, what story could I tell? And then I didn't, 
land on it. And I said, well, this is, you know, I, I want to stay in touch, but I don't think that's there. And then um, I, I think it wasn't until I talked to John Jung, who's since passed, um, but he's written a lot about, um, he's more of a legal scholar. And uh, he, he talked to me about this case. And then um, that, that's when it dawned on me that that could be a window into this kind of nuance in this world. But it really was, the book was born out of a failure to do what I had been assigned to do, which was write about my own family because the one family was so much more interesting. And um, it really was pulling at little tiny bits of threads of things in the beginning. Like there wasn't a lot there. And then eventually kind of through word of mouth, I got in touch with the family and that's when it really started to kick into gear. But it's been, um, you know, it took a couple, I was working on it for a few years before I got in touch with them and wasn't sure um, if the book would really take shape without them. I didn't, I didn't feel like it had a voice without having them there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, I think it's one of those things where um, I didn't set out to, to write the book and then it just kind of fell on me and then I did the best I could with it. But by no means was it what I set out to do when I went down there. I think being in the place also really set the tone. You know, I think anytime you go to the Delta, you come back with a lot of stories. That's just the way the place is engineered. So um, this was just one of them, but I'm sure I could go back and have a whole nother book. <laughs> There's just so much there. Really that they've done a fantastic job with the museum too. And they have a digital archive now. So it's, it's worth checking out. Um, there's there's a lot uh, a lot there and they're adding to it constantly so it's 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 worth um, getting in touch with them or you know if you're ever in Mississippi visiting they've reconstructed a grocery store in there they've really they've pulled in audio of voices throughout generations talking about that experience and it's it's really well done. just wanted to mention in the chat um jason provided the link to those fire insurance company maps oh great thank you jason See, you got to leave it to a librarian they know right <laughs> yeah they um most of them are in the public domain so library of congress has control of them and and you can get access to them that way um, and then there's a separate product that libraries often will purchase to give you access to some other years outside of public domain. Um, but it is a, a little expensive for libraries, so not every library offers it. And in fact, we, we stopped offering it, but um, we do have access to all the previous years ones through the library. Yeah, and they, um, I've re I had to reach out to them, um, to the library contracts, Congress to get specific ones and they were good about sharing that. I don't know if that, that they have some kind of leverage they can pull if you just want like one specific township, they'll they'll pull it for you. Um, so yeah, but yeah, more more often than not, you can find them. And it's a really cool, cool way to see your own town or anywhere over time. I don't know when they stopped doing them. Do you know, Jason? It's um I my coworker is a huge Sanborn nerd. Um, <laughs> I don't get it wrong, but it's prior. I feel like it's prior to 1940. 
that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of when it started wrapping up. Um, I can't think of any locally that are later than that. Um, and also Library of Congress that's once you get in deep to their digital history, humanities collections, um, you can also find a lot of those newspapers. Like you referenced so many great ones. Um, you can find those, especially little towns and public domain domain era ones you should be able to find through there as well the chronicling america section of library of congress website is great for that yeah and with the sanborn maps you can see like changes in technology change the town so as the car becomes more popularized you can see the way towns shift and it's really it's that was a a huge amount of my work was overlaying census maps with Sanborn maps and then oral histories on top of that. So it was kind of a three-tiered, the map and then the, you know, demographic map and then the actual storytelling map was all, it was a way to kind of build up, but the Sanborn was the start. I feel like I'm gonna put together, at least for Iowa City Public Library folks, that use us um, a book list, like spurred by your book. Cause I've, I've started writing down topics as we were talking that I was like, oh yeah, I could find a book on that topic. And I've got to like 25 topics here. And I feel like it's getting out of control, but I can't imagine what your, I'll just recreate your seven years of research probably in a book list, but um, there's so many, you know, you mentioned like eugenics and like, each of those is a book. There's probably a definitive guide to that for the Supreme Court, 14th Amendment. You know, it's sort of on and on. You could just dedicate your life to this, this era. There's really good narrative nonfiction too on a lot of those topics. So that's what I found is going through is like, I'm, I tend to want to read stuff with my feet up. Like I don't really like, like being a highlighter type of reader. So I managed to find a lot of really good stuff. I mean, it's it's probably in my end notes, but a lot of the stuff I read, I, and I read a lot of fiction too to get a sense of the time, but um, there's a lot of people, a lot of journalists working out there to, to make sense of these big issues in a way that's really palatable. You even had some uh, comments in there about the uh, whole of the Mississippi River, the whole... I don't know what to call it, but the Mississippi is almost a character. Yeah, that's actually what my editor told me to do. That's funny. You picked up on that. She's like, make the land. Because I was like, I can't flesh out my characters enough. It drove me crazy. And she said, well, make the landscape a character. Make the river a character. <laughs> so it's funny you picked up on that. Yeah, that was totally my editor that, that suggested that. Well, that's another thing that's true in American life. You know, the Mississippi is just a matter of myth and place and so on. Yeah, and kind of the ebb and flow of that was a big, uh, uh, there's good records of that. They kept track of the river. They kept track of the climate. Um, farmers, you know, the, 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 that was a, a treasure trove that I just happened upon was all of these notes from farmers and their record keeping was better than any almanac or, you know, they, they would keep track of every last little change in the weather. So 
So I have scenes where I'm describing growing at the time and what the way the weather is. And that's because I actually had that stuff because the farmers there kept track of everything they had to, their whole crops relied on it. So if they weren't keeping good notes, the next season that came around and they didn't have their records to go on, they were in trouble. So uh, a lot of that stuff with the landscape and those descriptions came from, you know, they were not mine. They were courtesy of the, the, the farmers in Bolivar County who were keeping track of this stuff. You guys have given me a lot to think about. I have to, <laughs> now that I have to actually do this op-ed, it's good. This has been a helpful conversation to think about all the threads that could be useful. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's it, this was written um, before COVID. You know, it was all written, pre it came out in the fall of 2016. So this was even before the 2016 election. <laughs> So it's interesting now, like, re, you know, looking at it again before our conversation of all of the, the undertones in the culture that have shifted. Um, so you think about kind of the, the post-COVID um, reaction and discrimination towards Asian Americans, right? Like all of that rhetoric tied between um, infection and immigration. Um, that's pulled out. There's, I actually have like, that language verbatim debated <laughs> in the, when they're debating the um the act of 1924 so it's it's the immigration act of 1924 they're they're talking about things that just become but this is written long before before any of that but to put it in this context is really interesting again to kind of see the world post post pandemic and see that that thread of it too um someone who was here but she um, they dropped off um just sent me a message about how that that was really um relevant in, in the book and I think that's that's a part of it that I had obviously not anticipated in any way um but I do hear from people again and again about about that being you know resonant I didn't plan <laughs> didn't plan any of that or even the immigration rhetoric that came out of the Trump presidency. Like I had nothing, I had absolutely nothing to do with any of, but it wound up being part of, part of the, it's so funny because I get very like angry uh, letters from some readers saying that I've, you know, gone in some political direction or whatever, but it was, this came out well before any, any, any of the stuff that, that's happening now. So it just tells you that history just continues to repeat itself over and over again. It just doesn't doesn't ever stop so um yeah it's it's worthwhile to, to take notes on your own family history <laughs> record whoever you can I just feel like it's it's so important to get as many voices archived um as possible because you never know what's going to be super relevant years from now so another plug for public libraries <laughs> For keeping track of these they were they were so helpful throughout the delta in keeping records but the one thing they wouldn't share which maybe jason you can weigh in on why they i they had um i wanted to get the the books that earl brewer and his family were reading i wanted they had it 
but I wanted to know what did they check out from the library and the librarian had literally been a hundred years was like I can't share with you what they checked out and I didn't <laughs> putting up a fight but I didn't know that was that firm of a policy but you got to give it to them they would not share so I don't have that I know they were avid readers I know they like financed the library and I don't know what they read and they won't tell me that is a like crucial tenet of library services patron privacy but I do sort of wonder about like public domain like can we release the records from a hundred years ago of what you checked out but yeah no I never faced that question yet but I guess we would probably say no as well um but man that would be interesting I mean whether they I'm assuming they would have a written out somewhere in a in a ledger book probably yeah they had all the old ledgers they had I mean they had oh, never wow. gotten rid of anything this is a Clarksdale library um in Mississippi they it's a it's a historic monument I mean they really did a great job of record keeping they had all kinds of stuff I had his they had his records of when he was sending them funds to the library back in you know the the late 1800s and stuff but no they didn't there was nothing they would not they had it but they would not provide any of him or his daughters I was really curious what his daughters were reading you know because they could have been getting into all kinds of stuff you mean the, the the Brewer family the Brewer family yeah they they their library records were there at the Clarksdale library but I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't allowed to see them which I you know they had to they had to do what they were going to do but it was just funny um they're very clear on that policy that they don't share what 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 people checked out from the library. You know, as a, as a as a reader, um, though, I I found uh, Brewer's Brewer um, actually compelling, and it changed sort of my my view of. Um, how much white certain white people were willing to 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 push things back during that era i i know when i was growing up um to kill a mockingbird was all the rage and i i really never got into that book because you know at the, at that time i thought okay how realistic is it that a white lawyer who has everything to lose, including the safety of his family, is going to lay everything on the line to defend a, a you know a black person. And so, growing up, I, I looked and said, "Well, that's real fiction because that just would would not happen." And then your your book came out, and it's like, you know, you know. Brewer was 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 a, a force to be reckoned with on on a lot of other levels. And um but here was a guy who was willing to take on a you know a very unpopular cause. I'm sure I'm sure his neighbors had things to talk about, you know, in, in terms of it. And so it it turned my my view of middle class and upper class whites in the south during that era from very i guess 
you know, a very one-dimensional sort of view of what they 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 were. And, you know, to a large extent, there was, I mean, it really was so, but then you did have these people who were willing to to go up against the, you know, this the 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 system for what didn't seem a whole lot of personal gain. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I mean, the more I got into his records, the more I just really could not believe that his level of conviction. Um, because you know, he changed course. He he really goes on an and he works with NLACP to um basically wage a whole anti-lynching campaign um in that area and so it's he's taking on case after case after case on behalf of these families um it's it's incredible i couldn't i was like why is he doing <laughs> but he is and he lived i mean he's a real person and i actually recently got in touch i had so much trouble finding the descendants of his family but i recently got in touch with them and his uh great granddaughter is working on a book about him now and she's a legal scholar so hopefully the the world will learn more about brewer um but yeah really really compelling guy Well, again, thank you so very much for this, um, Addie. It was a real, I mean, the, the, the book, the, the book was, the book was phenomenal. And uh, for many of us uh, uh, fans of the book, uh, this, this was something, this talk was something we were all looking forward to. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for joining, Eric. It's, it's nice to see your face. It's nice to kind of connect with people. I really, uh, it's been too long. I feel like I've been siloed <laughs> here in rural Virginia. So it's been nice to connect and, um, you know, hopefully the conversation keeps going just so, you know, Kristen and Jason, if folks have more questions and since you're recording, if they, if things come up, I really, um, I'm striving to learn more about the case and its relevancy. I'm really happy to provide resources and um, think through things with people. I, that's the part of the work that I really love. So, um, you know, this is an ongoing conversation. I don't, I don't see it ending here, but <clears throat> I think we should, you know, continue to stay in touch. Will it be possible for, um, for us to access the recording and share it with others who I, I my sister would have joined, but she had a conflict, so she'd love to listen to this. Is that possible? Is that going to be possible? Um, Someone, <laughs> Adrian, with your with your permission, I can share it with uh, the participants. Yeah, yeah, that would be fine. That'd be great. Thank you so much. We have the uh, you know the registration emails, and so I can certainly share it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Eleanor, when did you leave Rosedale? Mm, I guess in in '63 when I went to college in Memphis, <laughs> but then I went to New I went to New York in '70 in '69 and and 
other places after that. So, and now I'm in North Carolina. So oh, okay. I've been around. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, and thanks to the library for doing this. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It was very enjoyable and informative. And so very much appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. It was really fun. Um, yeah, and if anybody has questions or follow-up, you know, let me know. I, I'm hoping people will, um, if anybody missed, I know there was like that link issue. So if anybody missed, just let me know and I can connect with folks. Okay. Yeah, and I will... Um... I'll send out the uh, recording via email to the registrants. So, right. Okay. Great. Thank you all. Thank you.